Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. This is the second part of a two-part series on clinical research. We hear so much about it, and it has such a large impact on the official recommendations on how to use a medication and also on the exact nature of the FDA approval. But there are many aspects of it that need to be understood as the medication moves from research into everyday use. In particular, in psychiatry, we often measure the success or failure of a medication based on subjective observations from those conducting the research or from a battery of well-used tests to measure the changes in the conditions that we are trying to treat. Joining us today for the second time is Dr. Andrew Cutler from the Florida Clinical Research Center. This is our second opportunity to talk to you, and thank you so much for being with us. Well, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here, Abby. In the first interview, we talked about many of the aspects of research that could apply to almost any drug. Psychiatry is different. One of the things that always intrigued me is that we have so many rating scales. One would think that we would need only one. But if there are different rating scales, then perhaps they measure different things. What are some of the major problems in the measurement of changes in a psychiatric condition? And how do we know that it's the medication that's making the difference and not some other change in the person's life? the core of what it is to do clinical research because the goal here really is to detect change. And so what we need to do is try to see if we can detect a real change. And of course, whenever you're doing an experiment of any kind, the goal is to minimize the variables and try to study one kind of keep one thing variable and see if you can pick up a signal and minimize noise. It turns out that's a little harder to do than you might think in a clinical trial. One of the artificial variables that happens is we're seeing people sometimes every week and we spend quite a bit of time with them in the evaluation and during the study. And so now you're introducing a kind of nonspecific supportive educational kind of uh, element which can enhance the placebo response because anybody would feel better if they got to spend time with nice people who are asking them how they're doing and that kind of thing. So I think that the placebo issue is a little bigger in clinical research than it may be in the real world in clinical practice. And of course, in clinical practice, placebo is my friend. I'm not too concerned how or why somebody's getting better. I'm glad they're getting better. But in clinical research, placebo response is, your, is really your enemy because as you, said, as you said, you're trying to detect a real difference caused by a medication. And so if you have too much placebo response, there may be a real effect from the medicine, but it can get lost in the noise of the placebo response. So there's a number of things that we try to do, and and you put your finger on one, which is to select appropriate rating scales that really measure what it is you're trying to impact. So that's really another issue, too. If, If a medicine is doing something, but you're using a rating scale that doesn't really accurately look at those symptoms that are improving, then you may miss the signal, again, if you will. So so these are some of the issues. We have so many different scales. People will hear the Hamilton scales, the Madras, the Zung scales. Oh my goodness, the list is long. And in the case of depression, just starting with that one, they all measure depression, but they seem to measure different aspects of depression. Are there guidelines as to which of the many tests are chosen to be used in a particular study? Why a Madras versus a Hamilton? Is What's the logic behind it? Absolutely. Well, first of all, the rating scales generally are divided into two big overall classes, and that would be a clinician-rated scale or a self-reported scale. So the MADRAS you've mentioned, the Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale, and the HAMD or Hamilton Depression, they're clinician rated. That's an experienced clinician interviewer who does an evaluation interview and then scores the rating. The Zung, as you've mentioned, and there are others, the Beck, 
Those are self-rating where a patient will actually answer the questions by themselves with paper and pencil, if you will. Now, to the question of if, if you're trying to do a study to get a drug FDA approved, um, so big answer to which rating scale depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to do what's called a pivotal or registration study to get a drug approved by the FDA for depression, you have to go along with whatever the gold standard rating scales that they kind of will generally accept. For many years, it was the Hamilton Depression Scale, which was an, a very old scale, actually developed in the late 50s by a gentleman named Max Hamilton in England, and it was developed originally for use with very severely depressed patients in a hospital setting. And we're now using it for a variety of ranges of depression in the outpatient setting. So it doesn't necessarily translate as well. And it was developed well before the DSM-3R or the DSM-IV criteria that we use now. So it's measuring a whole host of symptoms. Many of them are nonspecific. By that, I mean they include some physical symptoms, uh, energy, digestion, breathing, chest pain, these kinds of things. Whereas the Madras is a newer, Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale is a newer rating scale. And once the FDA kind of gets uh, the notion that there's a gold standard scale, it's a little hard sometimes. The FDA, like other bureaucracies, moves a little slowly. But the FDA now clearly accepts the Madras. The Madras is a little bit more specific to medication effect in that there's less of those nonspecific physical kind of symptoms and more symptoms that are more of the um, the kinds of symptoms that are a little more specific to depression and that correlate a little better with the DSM construct. You know, anyone, this is interesting as we talk about this, but anyone who has taken a basic course in psychology has heard of the concepts of validity and reliability. In research, there is also a concept known as inter-rater reliability, and that comes from the fact that two people, and this happens in research and outside of research, two people evaluating the same patient using the same scale even sometimes, can come up with different conclusions. How do we address that? Well, this is a very important point that a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about and a lot of things trying to, to improve this inter-rater reliability. But the real issue is not so much inter-rater reliability, it's intra-rater reliability. And by that I mean, if, as long as I am consistently rating people the same way, as long as I can detect a change, it doesn't matter necessarily if I score a patient a 26 and you score them a 24. As long as we both detect the change over the course of the study, it doesn't matter so much that you and I are 100% correlating. Um, so if, what we try to do at my site, for instance, is we have regular trainings and we do kind of intra-rater reliability at my site so that we're all sort of using the same conventions. And I'm pretty confident that all of us can detect these kind of changes. But you're absolutely right. Again, this is a measurement issue, and it's a picking up a signal versus noise kind of issue. Um, there's actually a lot of debate about this right now as to whether it's better to have the same rater consistently throughout a study, or is it actually better to have different raters who are less likely to have developed some kind of a relationship that could cause bias or introduce artificial variables? Um, and be more objective, if you will. And, and really, the jury's out on that one. Traditionally, we try to keep a consistent rater. And personally, I, I, I really like that concept because I, all clinicians who may be listening will understand what I'm about to say, and that is when you're interviewing a patient, 
sometimes the language they use is different from the language we use. Absolutely. So, for instance, if I ask a patient, are you feeling depressed? They may say no. If I say, are you down? They'll say no. I say, are you blue? They'll say yes. So now we've hit upon a shared language, a common jargon. So next time I see them, I can ask, How are you, how's that blue feeling you were telling me about? And we, we can kind of arrive at a more precise way of communicating. Is there... Or are there techniques, are there scales to measure lifetime events? Let's say someone goes into a study and they are depressed, and then two or three weeks later they get good news, they win money. Something like that happens and they're going to feel better. How do we reflect that in the measurement process? Well, first of all, what you ideally would do is not put someone like that into a study. Um, you know, again, this comes under the heading of trying to minimize variables and detect a real change. Ideally, you'd want to find an endogenously, biologically, if you will, depressed patient who is likely to respond to medication because, as you say, if it's clearly situational and that situation is likely to change, now if they're getting placebo, they may start feeling better, and this could, of course, introduce noise and, and um, kill the signal of the real drug. So in a clinical trial, this is very different from the real world. Again, in the real world, I'm thrilled if something good happens and the patient feels better. But in a clinical trial, we have to select a population that is specifically going to be drug responsive and try to screen out people who really just have a more situational uh, kind of depression. So the diagnostic workup obviously has to be very thorough, very sophisticated, and I think a lot of people are surprised that when they go into research, the, the, the degree of diagnostic workup that is done, it's more than usually it's done in a private practice. Most doctors that I um, train to do research will tell me it's made them a better clinician because it really forces you to think a little more precisely and be a little more uh, careful, if you will, in your evaluation and to learn the, the DSM criteria better in some ways. But you're absolutely right that you, you've got to do a thorough evaluation, and it's a little different from the real world. You're looking for a patient who meets these criteria for the study, the specific inclusion and exclusion criteria. But more than that, you're looking for someone who meets not just the letter of the protocol, but the spirit of the protocol. And that includes things like someone who's likely to be medication responsive, somebody who's a good, accurate reporter. Because I, in a clinical interview, as you know, you're getting the data from the patient and what you observe, but also what they tell you. And if a patient is not psychologically minded or not articulate, I don't feel like they're necessarily able to provide meaningful data to detect that change. Now, that's an interesting point, or at least in my mind, it brings up an interesting point, because let's say someone is treatment resistant, and they've been on a number of the standard already marketed medications, and someone, meaning well, they thought they think it's a good idea, will say, go into this research project, see if they can help you. It may not be a good idea for the research. Well, you're absolutely right. Unless you're doing a study specifically for a patient who has treatment-resistant depression, let's say, most people's idea of research is, well, let's send the hard-to-treat ones, the ones who haven't responded to something else. This is new. It's research. But actually, most of the kinds of clinical trials that I do, I want the garden-variety depressed patient. I want the one who is likely to respond to most medications or a medication. So uh, often there are, are criteria in the study to say we should exclude people who are clearly treatment resistant because that's not the intent of this particular trial. And, and basically, if you haven't responded to several different medications, the odds are not good you're going to respond to this other medication either. One of the important aspects of any research, especially though when it comes to psychiatric conditions or dementia, is the notion of informed consent. If someone yeah. is actively psychotic or if they are demented and 
they are going to be considered for a study. This is a much sicker person. It's sort of um, someone once referred to me as like changing the tire when the car is still moving. It's <laughs> a great analogy. How do we approach that? How do we handle those types of situations? Sure. Well, this again is part of the way that the patients who come into clinical trials are not broadly reflective of a general clinical population because you're absolutely right that you've got to get informed consent from a patient. There were many, sadly, many horrible things that happened over the years, you know, including the, the airmen of Tuskegee who were unknowingly infected with syphilis virus, the horrible Nazi experiments of Dr. Mengele. So we now have, of course, an obligation to fully get full consent. So you're looking for a patient who is maybe in the case of psychosis or schizophrenia or even severe depression. You want someone who's sick but not too sick. So they have to be able to provide informed consent. Now, studies do show that even patients with schizophrenia who are having a psychotic episode, they can provide meaningful informed consent. But you have to be careful in, in selecting the patient. And it's a little bit of a balancing act, a little bit of a tightrope that we walk between trying to find somebody who's sick enough, uh, but not too sick, if you will. And by the same token, when it comes to doing research on kids, adolescents, young children, we know yeah. that these kids need medications properly used. They can be lifesavers. But how do we go about what are the discussions and the challenges about doing research on children? Yeah, this has really changed a lot over the 15, 16 years that I've been doing this. Um, first of all, of course, the, the, this is a different environment because now you're talking about somebody who has a legal guardian involved. There are many people sort of involved in the child's life, and we just all we feel more paternalistic and protective of kids. However, as you say, kids are not just small adults, and we, we need more data. We need more guidance on how to use these medications in children, and certainly there's a large clinical need, so we need more drugs approved. A couple of things have happened over the years. The first was in, I want to say it was around 1996, there was a, an FDA Modernization Act passed, which provided incentives for drug companies to do research on their medicines in the child population. And over the years, those incentives have evolved to where a drug company, if they do a specific study in children, they can be granted an extension of their patent exclusivity for six months or a year. And when you're talking about some of the blockbuster medications that make one to two billion dollars a year, they could make as much as a billion dollars in six months. And so if they spend a couple of million to do a study, that's a pretty good return on investment. So there's a lot of incentive. Now, at the same time, there have been some bad outcomes and it's thrown cold water on the situation. And we're all familiar with the boxed warnings now that all antidepressants carry about the risk of suicidal thinking and suicidality in those under the age of 25 with antidepressants. And that's really changed the landscape and made it a lot harder to do studies actually for depression in kids and harder to recruit in some ways. So these are some of the different issues, but you know, clearly you, you do have to do these kinds of studies. And when you're doing them, you've got to make sure that you've got not just the parent, but someone who is the duly authorized legal guardian, because the informed consent issues are certainly a lot more complicated. We see nowadays that many studies are being done overseas. And yeah. unlike many general medical research studies, where if we're looking at an antibiotic, we can see whether it kills the bacteria or not. It basically can be photographed, so to speak. Yeah. What about the cultural differences that come into play when we look at psychiatric things? A, a depressed Hispanic person may present with a different clinical picture than a depressed Asian. Do the studies take these into consideration? Are we measuring these cultural differences? Well, 10 years ago, the vast majority of participants of studies in the United States were white and Caucasian, and our, it certainly does not reflect our population. And so the FDA has actually made a mandate for 
companies to study more diverse populations that more broadly reflects the ethnic and racial background of the United States. And so we now have a lot more Hispanic, uh, African-American, Asian, Native Americans involved in our studies. But it's more than just that. It's more than just the genetics, as you said. It's also the culture you're living in. And so nowadays, also, our studies have become more global. And the same study will be run in many different countries around the world. And you're absolutely right that there are significant cultural differences, and these can have meaningful impacts on a study. A good example I can give you quickly is there was a, um, a large program done for a drug that's currently approved for schizophrenia, an atypical antipsychotic. And there was a study done in the United States, and the identical study was done in the rest of the world, in largely European countries. The rest of the world separated from placebo was a positive, successful study. However, the study in the United States was a failed study where the drug did not separate from placebo, and an active reference drug also did not separate from placebo. Some of the differences here, the cultural differences that probably led to this were, on average, the patients in the rest of the world were 10 years younger. They were in their 30s as opposed to the 40s in the United States. And we know the patients with schizophrenia, when they're younger, they tend to be a little more able to respond and you have more greater change. Another cultural difference, however, was that in other countries, the patients stayed in the hospital longer. And as a matter of fact, in some countries, including India, the family either moves into the hospital with the patient or certainly comes to visit them and spends a lot of hours with them and brings them food and things like that. So staying in the hospital longer can be better because you minimize other variables. In the United States, patients were discharged from the hospital much more quickly after approximately two weeks. And then, of course, we know we have a horrible system of care in the United States. And so people fell through the cracks. They stopped taking their medicine. They use alcohol or drugs. And this led to differences in the outcome of the study. So there certainly are lots of, and then other things as far as logistically translating the rating scales into the native language, making sure that people are using the same kind of diagnostic criteria, which clearly that's not always the case. So there are a host of issues that come into this. Now, another important issue that's happened is for quite some time now, we've had a problem with an increasing failure rate in our studies in psychiatry. Typically, it's not because the drug doesn't work. It's usually because the placebo works too well or you, you don't get as much drug response as you would like. It was, it was the case uh, several years ago that placebo responses were much lower overseas, maybe for cultural or a variety of other reasons. But what's happened now over time is placebo response is rising overseas. And so it seems like we're exporting our problems somehow. And it could be because of the nature of the enterprise. We're throwing more, there's money to be made, if you will. It's becoming more of an industry. And so whenever that happens, sometimes people sacrifice quality for speed or, you know, are looking to make money. One of the big trends we've seen is there are websites now where patients can do research and find out how much a site will pay them to do a clinical trial and where to go exactly. And so we sometimes have this professional patient population that is doing the study for the wrong reasons, if you will. So that's another variable that can lead to a failed study. As you and I have discussed before, what really is most significant is about a year or two after the drug has actually been approved and tens of thousands of doctors have used it in hundreds of thousands of patients with every mixture around. Then you know what's really going on. Well, I always joke that I do the kind of research that gets the medicine on the market and then the real research begins when doctors get their hands on it, as we've talked about today. The patients who go into a clinical trial, first of all, there may only be about 2,000 or 3,000 before the drug gets approved, which is obviously a very small number compared to the broader population it may be used in. But also, as we've talked about, there are specific criteria so that this is a very narrow sample and not broadly representative. So as you said, when a drug gets on the market, sometimes we learn things about how to dose it properly. And we find that maybe the dosing that was studied wasn't correct, or we learn uh, things about uh, side effects, drug-drug interactions that we didn't see in the clinical trials. 
for instance. It's a very interesting process. It's a very critical process because it's where we get our new clinical tools to a large degree. Dr. Andrew Cutler is from the Florida Clinical Research Center in Florida. This is our second opportunity to hear him talk about research, a topic that he is very well versed and experienced in, and he's done good work over the years. Dr. Cutler, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Abby, very much. I can't believe a half hour is over already. The time really flew.